I have a theory. I have a theory, and uh, I'm not usually one to have a problem finding words, as many of you know, and harass me for, um, and that's okay. I'm good with that, but I have a theory. My theory is that there are some songs that we can sing to the Lord that Satan hates more than others. I don't think he's bothered by songs that necessarily tell us how much we need God. I need you, Lord. I'm weary. I need you. Your victory is going to come through. Those are not bad songs. We need those at points in our lives, right? We need those things to remind us of the fact that we need assistance and help from someone greater, that we're elevating God as an authority. Those are not bad songs. And obviously, he doesn't enjoy those songs. But I think songs that specifically lift up the name of Jesus and declare the power of the cross irritate him the most because it was at the cross that his strategy was defeated. It was at the cross. Think about the most significant space in history that he strategically put together to end what he thought was going to be God's plan only to have it flipped upside down and for him to be completely embarrassed by what God did on the cross. I think songs that elevate the name of Christ, that elevate the name of Jesus, that lift him up and that celebrate the fact that the cross of Jesus Christ is the turning point where we went from being people that knew about God to people that actually had God beginning to dwell in us through Pentecost. All of that began to change. The power of sin, the scripture says, was defeated. That Jesus actually descended into the depths and he, he unleashed, if you will, opened up the gates of hell, figuratively speaking, to release us into a place where we are no longer bound by the consequences of our sin. And he bore it all for us. So I say that for you because I think sometimes, interestingly enough, they're some of the hardest songs for us to sing as well. And I don't know why that's the case, but I just want to encourage you as we come into this time, Christmas is a great time to remember the birth of Christ, but let's also remember that Jesus didn't stay as a baby. Amen? If he was just little baby Jesus, then we'd have a lot less to sing about, but he came for a purpose, and that's why we're here to celebrate. Um, good morning, everyone. Uh, happy December 2023 for you all. We are a week away and one day from Christmas Day. How many of you are ready? Yeah, let's hear it. Let's, round of applause. How many of you are ready for Christmas? How many of you are lying through your teeth? I can't clap for that. I'm not ready for any of it. I mean, there's a whole lot of other stuff that still needs to get done between now and Christmas for us to say we are ready. Just getting through Friday's um, uh, gingerbread bash was an amazing time. This place was full of people, and we had a ton of students in the back as well. If you were here, you understand what I'm talking about. And I just wanted to give, again, a huge thank you to the people that gave so much time and effort to making that happen. Um, It was a lot of fun to be here. It was a lot of fun to see Faces we've never seen. So many people from our community actually came, and, and it was just a lot of fun to see what God was doing uh, in, a, in a time to celebrate. I really think that God is pleased with that. You know, you walk into a room like this, and everyone's making stuff and laughing and with their family and their friends, and, and there's a whole world out there that basically says the kind of community that the Christian church wants to build, that's old school, but it's not. We use this word in this world today called progressive, which I think is a complete lie. Progressive doesn't mean that you're always better. Sometimes it means you're further away from the truth. And I'm not saying it's always that way, but sometimes we put labels on things telling people it's better when it's actually worse. We need more time with our families. We need more time in relationship with those around us. We need to build community. Amen? 
And that's part of what we were trying to accomplish on Friday. And I think everyone that did, um, that was a part of it, did a really great job. And I'm thankful for that. So thank you for being a part of that if you were here. Um, we are done with our series um, from the last couple of weeks. Pastor Jeff wrapped up our, um, our open-handed series last week. And today we're going to do an open-ended series, or not series, but we're going to start one message today that I'm going to continue on on Christmas Eve next week. Just two, two, two messages. They're not really a series, but they are connected. Um, and we're going to read from the book of Isaiah this morning, chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to look at verse 6. We're going to look at one verse this morning. To some of you, it's a very familiar verse, and to others, um, maybe you've heard it before, and maybe you didn't remember where it was located, but it's one of those verses that pop up every Christmas. So we're going to read it this morning, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit today, and then ask you to follow along. So beginning in verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet Isaiah writes to the nation of Israel, for unto God, or I'm sorry, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's pray just for a moment. Lord, we give this to you this morning. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your scripture, the word of God that's inspired through men, but comes directly from heaven. God, use this opportunity this morning for us to have a deeper understanding of this so it doesn't just fill our heads with knowledge, but it changes our hearts. We love you, and I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever glossed over something in your life because maybe you've heard it so many times that it's become routine or rote? Maybe you've heard it so many times that you just think you already know what it means. Maybe it's something that you do and but you take the time and you dig a little deeper into it and you realize that there's actually more than meets the eye. This can happen in a lot of different ways. If you're in a relationship, hopefully this doesn't happen to you, but if you're in a relationship, you know, the newness of a relationship can wear off. Even the words, I love you. Some of you might remember the first time, if you're married, the first time a spouse might have told you, I love you. Some of you might remember that. And now, maybe years and years later, you just kind of say it. But do you really remember and think about the gravity and what the weight of those words actually mean? I think, and I said it earlier this morning, but when the extraordinary becomes ordinary, we as Christians are in danger of losing sight of the wonder of God. And there's something very beautiful about Christmas, as there is with Easter, but as there is with every other week of the year as we gather and we worship. And I want to encourage you this morning to take a moment with me and try not to lose the idea of wonder and to reflect on what we just read because it holds a deeper meaning for people that decide to meditate on this. I had a reminder of this this week when I was driving home the same, almost the same time of night for two days in a row. I was driving home and when I got on the street right before my street, for some reason, the moon was right at the top of the street. You ever have that experience where you're driving down a road and it's like straight ahead right at you? And I noticed over the last couple of days that it was in a crescent shape because most of the moon was covered by the shadow of the earth. And It is one of the coolest things to see the crescent of the moon. You know what I'm talking about, right? When you're a kid, that's the only way you drew a moon, right? You always drew the little crescent. And then we sang, we we read the book, Good Night Moon. Some of you know that book, Good Night Moon? Anyone know that, that book? Yeah, that's good. Good. It's a great book. If you don't know it, you should read it and memorize it. No, I'm just kidding. It's a great book, though. Why am I telling you this? Because over the last couple of days, I would look at it, and for some reason, I wouldn't look away. 
I would look at it a second time, and I thought about it, and then I just started looking at the detail of the moon. Now, I wasn't driving at that moment. I actually like, pulled the car and stopped for a second, just so you know. I wasn't not staring at the road. If you spend some time reflecting on what you're looking at, you start to see more of the detail than you saw before. And the awe of what you're looking at starts to really hit you. That's what happened over the last couple days when I was looking at the moon. It's something that you may see every day of the week when you go out, but you don't stop to think about it. Well, the verse that we just read was spoken to the nation of Israel over 2,700 years ago. The prophet Isaiah spoke it to the nation of Israel. And if I can summarize what it was, it was a message of hope. A message of hope that something was going to change. Not that things were going to be better right away, but that they were going to change one day forever. Now, at the time Isaiah spoke this verse, just to give you a little context, and it's important because we're going to read it again in just a moment. But when Isaiah spoke this verse to the nation of Israel, there was 750 years of history plus for the nation at the time that he spoke this passage or this verse. Those years included a variety of experiences for the nation of Israel. Different seasons, if you will. Seasons of slavery, seasons of famine, seasons of prosperity, of poverty, of war, unity, division, even upcoming exile is what they were getting ready to experience. And Isaiah is getting ready to tell them of this upcoming exile. We're not going to go back to chapter 8, but it's important for you to know that in chapter 8, the chapter right before this passage, Isaiah is telling them of a prophecy that's getting ready to happen. And the prophecy that's going to happen is not a prophecy of encouragement because Israel was not living in a way that honored God. So Israel was getting ready to experience some of the worst things that they've experienced in their existence. It's only going to get worse in the near future. The nation, because of its disobedience and its sinful ways, is getting ready to be sent into exile. That the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are going to be broken up. And Isaiah actually talks about how the Assyrians come in and they take away the one and the, the Babylonians come in and they take away the other years later. And this is getting ready to happen, but it's getting ready to happen hundreds of years into the future. Not two years, three years, four years, but it's happening soon, sooner for the northern kingdom and much further for the southern kingdom. Now, if you were Isaiah and you were speaking this to the nation of Israel, how excited would you be to share this? And if you were the nation of Israel, how excited would you be to hear it? How many of you are excited to hear great news that involves you losing everything and being carried off into slavery? Anyone else want to hear that kind of news? No, we don't want to hear that kind of news. But in chapter 9, Isaiah shares the news of a future. Even though this bad stuff is getting ready to happen, he points them farther beyond what's going to happen in the short term to a time things are going to change, not for a moment, but forever. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we're going to read it again. He says, For unto us a child is born. He's looking ahead hundreds of years, over 700 years ahead. And they don't know how far ahead. But he says, even though all these things are going to happen to you that I just talked about, and there's going to be an exile, and you're going to be carried into different places, there's hope. Why? Because there's going to be a Messiah that you're waiting for. And unto us, this child will be born, this son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. How encouraging could it be in that moment, even though they hear this horrible news, to also hear 
But God has not forgotten us. There is a coming deliverer, an anointed one, a Messiah, if you will. And he's going to bring, and he's going to bring peace. He's going to be the prince of peace. Now, peace can look different for you and me as it looks different for them. In fact, when they thought of it, they probably only looked at it, what we see in Scripture, from a human perspective. What does peace look like for you? Well, it can be silence. It can be quiet. It could be a ceasefire where both sides decide no longer to fight for a period of time. It could mean harmony by keeping the peace. Everyone agrees to coexist. Is there really peace between the both sides? No, they just decide for a moment to establish harmony between each other. Peace talks in the Middle East are very different than peace talks in your home. So the definition of peace, the definition of peace is very different depending on how you're looking at it. But the scripture says when Jesus came, he came to bring true peace. What is true peace? Well, in the Old Testament, true peace is represented in the Old Testament by one word. And the word that this is in Isaiah 9, 6 is the word shalom. And some of you have heard of this word. It's not just a greeting that Jewish people give to each other. It is the definition of true peace. It's, if you will, the kind of peace that's not achievable by man's attempts. When someone proclaims and, produ- and, and prays shalom over you, they're not saying, I just hope everything goes well in your life. They're making a declaration that they're saying, we hope there is something of peace that is achieved outside of your ability. Because shalom is also synonymous with the word completeness, if you will. When we talk about shalom, we're also talking about a completeness that's all encapsulating. So when someone says they proclaim shalom over you or shalom over your house, they're saying a wholeness, a completeness. And what type of completeness? Of the work of God evidenced in your life. The peace of God evidenced in your life. An unshakable confidence that whatever is happening around you cannot overcome the assurance of God working in you. That's the kind of peace that we're talking about. The wholeness, the declaration. And that's what's beautiful about the passage because Israel may have looked at it from the perspective to say, oh, the Messiah is coming and he's going to rule the world and he's going to bring world peace. But that wasn't the kind of peace alone that the prophet was talking about. He was talking about the kind of peace that transcends this earth, that is complete across the entire universe, if you will. So that regardless of what happens around those who are followers of the Most High God, it can it cannot, it cannot subject or usurp that which is going on inside the, the hearts of the followers of God. That's the kind of peace that nothing can rob you of that unshakable confidence. So they're waiting for a Messiah in the Old Testament. Fast forward into the New Testament. As Christians, we know this Messiah to be Yeshua, to be J- Jesus. And in Luke chapter 1, 700 years after the passage in Isaiah is spoken, the announcement that God was going to the send Messiah was repeated in Luke chapter 1, 32 and 33. We see this in the New Testament. Look, it says, He, speaking of the coming one, the Messiah, he declares it in this moment. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. It's like a parallel of what you saw 700 years earlier. We know that this is Jesus. And then a year later, Jesus 
was born. So all of this is just background and facts, and I wanted to share that with you, but it's important for me just to say that because my question to you this morning is, how can Jesus be the Prince of Peace that brings completeness in our lives? How can he really be the Prince of Peace that brings completeness in our lives? Maybe you've read that scripture many times, and it became extraordinary when you first read it, and now it's just ordinary because you've heard it every Christmas, every holiday. You hear this over and over again. This morning, I want to take a few moments and I want to talk about how you can experience Jesus as the Prince of Peace in your life that brings true completeness and contentment. So we're going to read chapter 9, verse 6, one more time. He says in the second part, he says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And look what he says. The government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called four names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Okay? Just sit on this for me, with me, just for a moment. There's coming a Messiah, there's coming a Deliverer who will establish a completeness of peace that will change the world as we know it. He's saying, and the government will be on his shoulders. What does that even mean? And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of peace. What does this mean? Well, this morning I want to try to break it out for you briefly, and I want to help to give you some understanding, and I want to encourage you then to reflect on it. Because if we reflect on this and we meditate on this scripture, it will change the way that we think. And if it changes the way we think, it will change the way we act. And if it changes the way we act, it will change the way we live. So, what does it mean? When it says the government will be on his shoulders. All I'm going to say of that briefly is the government being on his shoulders was a terminology that they used to talk about the idea of dominion. Who's in charge? Dominion. That's really what it comes down to. So I want you to think about this. We understand a government in our own country and we know the ones who lead the government, the ones who are in charge are the ones that pretty much call the shots, right? That's what it means. Now this was in a monarchy, so we're talking about a kingship, but if the government will be on the shoulders of this Messiah, what he's saying is, remember, this coming Messiah, he will be in charge of all governing. Everything that needs to be governed will be the responsibility of this Messiah, okay? So let me put this into context. You say, okay, why does that matter? Well, I'm excited to tell you that less than a year from now, we are going to have another presidential election. Aren't you excited for this coming year? Look at all the mumbles. They're like, oh my goodness. There'll be people sitting around you that you work with that you may not ever be friends with at the end of the election. I hope that doesn't happen. But the fact of the matter is, people get very, very worked up when it comes to a presidential year. One of the questions that I hear people say all the time, though, is that they analyze the administration that might be elected into office. So if this candidate gets elected, they ask questions. They say, well, if this candidate gets elected, what type of administration will this administration, uh, what type of, of administration will this leader bring into the governing structure? Make sense? And if this person gets elected as president, what type of administration will they have? And they start talking about adjectives that describe where their priorities are and what to expect in either case. Does that make sense? Many times they, prop, they practice or they, they promise lower taxes, and in both situations, it's usually the opposite. But my point in sharing that is that when the governments are put into place and the uh, offices are put into place, what the administration is going to do is something everyone is watching. And the only way they really can know what the administration will do is by looking at the past, 
the people that they've put in place, and then watch things play out, right? It's a combination of those things. What if we took a step back and we looked at this passage and we said, there's coming a time where Messiah, Jesus Christ himself, will be the governing leader of the entire world that we know. The government will sit on his shoulders. He will be in charge of it all. And people will have to submit to that governing leadership. What type of administration will he put into practice? Have you ever thought about it that way in looking at this scripture? Well, we have a little insight into what that looks like because Isaiah says the new government's going to be put in place. This anointed one, our Messiah, is going to take that role and his administration is going to be under the name's wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father who brings true shalom, peace. That's the kind of administration Messiah is going to bring to this world. Isn't that pretty cool? Think about that. Oh, wow, I never really thought about it that way. I just kind of read it and we move on. Here's why this is so important. This morning I want to look at each one of these things. I want to look at the first, second, and third one because they all lead to the Prince of Peace. You see, I highlighted Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and Everlasting Father. Those three together are the combination that bring peace. When we recognize that he is a wonderful counselor, when we recognize he's a mighty God, when we recognize he's an everlasting father, and we walk in that truth, we experience true peace. That's what I'm going to get at this morning. So I hope you can just take a few moments and walk alongside with me. All three of these things point to him being the greatest in every one of these areas. What is this administration going to look like when Messiah sets up a governing rule and a governing authority in this world? The first one, he's going to be the wonderful counselor. And the wonderful counselor means he's going to bring the greatest wisdom that you've ever seen for eternity. The greatest wisdom. Wonderful counsel means the greatest wisdom. 1 Corinthians one thirty says, God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be what? Wisdom itself. When Jesus sets up his reign forever, he brings with him the greatest wisdom. It doesn't say he brings the greatest knowledge. Knowledge is understanding facts. Wisdom is what you should do with it, right? There's a difference. You may have incredible knowledge on how to build wealth, and then you might spend it all on stupid stuff. That's someone who's smart but foolish, to make, there's a difference, right? See the difference? Just because you know how to do things doesn't mean that you're doing it for the right reasons or for the right purpose. God will take the knowledge of everything he's given us and he will show us the correct way to, to use it, to manage it, to function in this world. All of these things are important for us to understand because without wisdom itself, we're, we're um, how would I say this? We're subject to our own devices. And that's not always a good thing. What would it look like to know that beyond all of the things that we want, we want wisdom? Well, we could look back into the Old Testament and we could see when God called Solomon to be the third king of the entire nation of Israel, he gave him an option. He said, ask me one thing. What is it that you want? And Solomon didn't choose wealth. He didn't choose prosperity. He didn't choose anything other than wisdom. He said, grant me wisdom so I can rule over your nation with godliness and integrity. And because he chose wisdom, God gave him everything else. What would it look like if today you recognized and I recognized 
that the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself, he was born into this earth. He was raised as a baby. He grew up as into an adult, began his ministry. God gave him all authority in heaven and earth after he died, was resurrected. And when he comes back to this world and he sets up his governing rule, he will bring with him the greatest of wisdom. And by us being followers of Christ, we become recipients of that wisdom. If you're looking for peace that passes all understanding, ask yourself where your wisdom comes from. Are you seeking the wisdom of Jesus or are you seeking the wisdom of men? And I can tell you 100% they're not always the same. Sometimes the wisdom of Christ looks nothing like the wisdom of men. Sometimes the things he asks us to do with what we have look nothing like what the world asks us to do with what we have. Does anyone understand what I'm talking about this morning? Right? Even the cross itself, the Apostle Paul says, is what to the world? Foolishness to the world. The king of all creation came to earth to die? That doesn't make any sense. That's why today the Jewish people still cannot accept the fact that Yeshua, Jesus Christ himself, is the Messiah because their Messiah would never have come to die. They came, he came to set up a new rule. It makes no sense. But the kingdom of the earth doesn't always look like the kingdom of heaven. So I ask you this morning, the wonderful counselor, the greatest wisdom, the one who gives you the ability to experience wisdom and walk in peace, are you following that wisdom? Are you seeking the wisdom of Christ? Because that is one of the keys to experiencing the peace of God. The more we know Jesus, the more we grow in wisdom. You have to know more about who Jesus is to grow in his wisdom. Number two, not just wonderful counselor, but mighty God. Mighty God is the greatest authority. Think about this with me just for a moment. He shall be called wonderful counselor. Huge amount of wisdom, great, great wisdom. Mighty God. That's synonymous with saying he is the greatest authority. In Matthew 28, 18 through 19, Jesus said before he left earth, after the resurrection, I have been given all what? authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There is power in the name of Jesus Christ. And as we walk this journey in this life today, as followers of Jesus, when we recognize who our authority is, it changes the way that we live and it changes the experiences around us. It also changes the storm inside of us. This is important for us to understand. It's important for me to understand because when I choose not to follow the authority of Jesus, what I'm saying is I know better than he does. And I no longer submit myself to his guidance and his leading. I choose to follow my own. And then I embrace things I probably shouldn't embrace. I think on things I shouldn't think. I boost myself up with pride instead of humility. Does anyone understand this, what I'm talking about? Jesus says this is where authority comes through. There's an attitude of submission that needs to happen in the lives of all who follow Christ. That even begins when we follow Christ. Just choosing to follow Christ is the ultimate attitude of humility and submission, right? My life doesn't belong to me anymore. Jesus is the Lord of my life, which means he rules it, I don't. So when we talk about him being the greatest authority, it means we submit ourselves to the authority of Christ. And can I say it this way? If we are submitting ourselves to the authority of Christ, then we have to ask ourselves if we understand how he's created us to live. If he's asked us how he's created us to interact with others, 
how he's created us to demonstrate godly love and not just worldly love. How he's created us to manage our resources and our finances and the gifts that he's given us. How he's challenged us to change our thoughts and our our words. and, And everything about this life should be submitted to the one who says, if I am truly authority in your life and the world around me, then you become a follower of me and you learn to be who I've created you to be. When we do that, and we recognize him as the mighty God, the greatest authority, we begin to experience more unshakable peace, the shalom of God. Why? Because we already know the wisdom comes from him, and now we know all authority belongs to him. So it's not just that we gain true authority by following Jesus, but we also walk our life and our path the way he's called us to live, not the way we choose ourselves to live. So, okay, let's try this this morning. Raise your hand if you like making decisions about your own life. Anyone? The people that are not raising their hand, look around. Become their friends. Okay? If you don't raise your hand for this, then either your hand doesn't work. Okay? Or, or you're just embarrassed to raise your hand. But just keep it up just for a second. If you like making decisions about yourself, about your life, just put it up for just for a moment. Okay. How? Okay. So there's a lot of people around there to put their hands up. Okay? You can put them down now. When we become followers of Jesus Christ, we no longer have the freedom to make decisions about our own life. We submit our lives to Christ, which means we have to walk in the wisdom of Christ, which means we have to walk in the authority or under the authority of Jesus. So, and this happens in the church a lot, in the Christian church, and I love it. Pastor Jeff and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago as well. When you have a hard conversation with someone about something that doesn't align with what God's word is saying, it's very much like Samuel in the Old Testament. When Israel asked for a king and they rejected the, the idea that, that God would be their king, and Samuel was offended. And God said to Samuel, don't be offended that they're rejecting me. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And the whole thing kind of applies today is that when we live in a way that doesn't honor God and doesn't look like God, and we bring that to someone, if they get angry at us, they're not really angry at us. They're kind of angry at God because they're not following what we're asking them to do. They're not following what God is asking them to do. That's something we all have to reconcile in our hearts. Mighty God, the greatest authority. I can promise you that when you choose to submit your ways to God's ways, understand, well, I don't know what God's ways are. Well, there's a whole book that can show you what that looks like. And there are people that are walking in relationship with Christ that can help you navigate it because we don't need to know it all. No one can know it all. But I can tell you right now, there are people around this room and people that you may have relationship with outside of this space that know Jesus that can help you as you're trying to walk the journey. That's the beauty of iron sharpening iron, as Proverbs says. Iron sharpening iron means there's some things you can help others with and there are other things they can help you with. And if we do it together and then we understand how Jesus is and how he's wired, how his priorities are set up, we can walk under his authority, in which case we can then experience the peace of God. So he's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. The last thing this morning is the everlasting father. He's the everlasting father. And this means he's the greatest love. What kind of father is he? What does the scripture say? What kind of father is he? everlasting. So when does everlasting end? Never, never, nada, nunca, whatever word you want to use in any language. Nunca would mean never, right? Nada means nothing. What? It does. Nunca means nothing or never. 
Never. What is it in French? Jamais. See? If you don't know French, you just learned a word. Jamais. It means nothing, right? Never, I mean. Never. His love never ends. When does God's love end towards you? Never. It never, ever ends. Romans 8.39. Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If all wisdom comes from Christ, if all authority comes from Christ because he's the greatest wisdom and he's the greatest authority, how encouraging is it to know that all love comes from him as well and it's an eternal love that never ends? Because we don't live in a world today. We do not live in a world today where love is unconditional in everyone's eyes. Love is subjective many times. It's conditional on behaviors. It's conditional on your worlds and, and what someone does or doesn't do sometimes or how your, how your worlds collide in some ways or they inter, intersect with each other. God's love is unchanging, which means if we focus on him, if we give him, if we choose him for wisdom, if we follow him under authority, his love continues in Christ Jesus. It will never end. We do not walk this life alone. Have you ever been in a place where you felt utterly helpless or hopeless and you didn't know where to turn to and you didn't know who to turn to in the midst of that time? Can I tell you, in those places, sometimes the only place you can go to is Jesus. Well, I need to talk to a friend. Sometimes that helps. But sometimes the peace that you're looking for doesn't come by what someone that you know can share with you. It's by spending some time alone with God and letting Jesus minister to your own heart. That's what an everlasting father does, and that is the greatest love. Luke 17.33 says, Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. Why are we saying that? Oh, I'm sorry. I back up for a second. I messed up. I didn't get there yet. So let's back up and go back to that for a second. In a world where people can disappoint, God does not. He is a perfect father. He continues to show love to all who choose to follow him. So, if you're willing to embrace wonderful counselor, if you believe that he's the mighty God and he's the everlasting father, you might be here this morning and just say, I just don't know how to do this. How do I really do it? I understand the concepts, but I need something practical. Here's three simple, practical things for you this morning. Number one, give your life to Jesus. You cannot experience peace that passes understanding unless you are a follower of Christ. That's the word of God. That is a foundational truth. I know people have different perspectives of things across this world, but the truth of the matter is Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him, and he is the one that salvation comes through. Unless a man be born again, they cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The scriptures go on and on and on. And if you confess him with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died and he's the Lord of your life, you shall be saved. Give your life to Jesus. It begins with letting Jesus take control of your life because he knows the way. So let him be in charge. Now we get to Luke 17, 33. Jesus said, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. Does that make sense? No. Is it true? Yes. You were not created, nor was I created, to live my own life on my own. I was created to submit my life to Christ and then find out in the journey that I'm in how he's actually created me to be because we are created to know him, to love him, and to worship him. Number one, give your life to Christ. Colossians 1, 20, 20, 1, 21 and 22 says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. That was before Jesus. 
He's talking to Christians here. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through the death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. You see what Jesus does? We have to recognize in our own, seeing what the word of God says, that without Christ, we're dead in our sins. Without Christ, we're, we're, we're confined to our own world, which is a world of being an enemy of God. But because of Jesus, we can follow him. We can choose to walk in his power and his light. And he reconciles us. Christ reconciles us to God through the death, being holy in his sight. We are no longer seen as sinners in the eyes of God. We're seen as forgiven through a savior of his son. Have you given your life to Christ this morning? If you haven't given your life to Christ, that is the beginning to experience perfect peace, shalom peace. Number two, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. What do you spend your time looking at? What do you spend your time focusing on? What do you spend your time listening to? Isaiah 26.3 says, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are what? Steadfast, because they trust in you. Meditation is not an evil practice. Meditating on evil things is an evil practice. Meditating on God, meditating on his word. This comes right out of scripture. We won't go go there this morning, but Psalm 1 talks about those who take the word of God and meditate meditate on it. It's like they're planted deep next to the roots. Their roots are deep next to the stream that flows with water and it gets nurtured as it meditates on the word of God. As you focus your eyes on the things of Christ, the things of the world will become less significant. And the peace of God begins to fill your heart. And when you fill your heart with God's peace, the things around us take less meaning. There's an old song that many people know that says, turn your eyes upon who? Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. It doesn't say the things of the earth go away. It doesn't say that all the problems decrease. It says the the focus on Christ makes the peripheral become less significant. If you're looking for real peace in your life and you feel like things are out of control, even if it's for a moment or for a long period of time, have you given your life to Christ? And if you have, the second question is, have you fixed your eyes on Jesus? Because what we focus on determines on what we want to become. In this world around us, People are spending their eyes, their time focusing on becoming an American idol. For them, life is about becoming a superstar. It's all about them. They focus on wealth. Life is about seeing people and things as opportunities for self-gain. If they only focus on wealth, they see things as positives and negatives and who are resources that can build their own well-being and their own kingdom. If they focus on negativity, their life is about managing fear. If they focus on sinfulness, I'm just a sinner, I'm always a sinner, then really... Their life is really all about themselves. What they're bad at, what their pleasures are, what their failures are. But if they focus on Jesus, their life is about him. Who he is. Whatever pleases him and honors him. And in worship, he inhabits the praises of his people. Can I just encourage you this morning to please ask yourself who you focus on in the midst of anxiety, struggle, and frustration. Do you focus on yourself or are you focusing on getting to know Jesus? Because as the scripture says, those who keep their minds steadfast will be in perfect peace. Number three, our team comes up this morning. Number three, 
I don't want you to just consider giving your life to Jesus and fixing your eyes on him. But number three, spend time in his presence. Spend time in his presence. Psalm 4610 is very clear. It says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. I cannot emphasize enough, and I think we all understand, the pace that we live in in this world, the distractions that we experience, the struggles that we have that distract us from giving our life and our time to the things of God. That doesn't mean you have to be in the church every day. It doesn't mean you have to pray four hours a day. It doesn't mean you have to do anything that somebody else is doing the way they're doing it. You know if you are being still and spending time with God. And can I tell you, God knows if you are being intentional, spending time with God. You don't need to look at the person next to you and say, well, that person prays this many minutes a day or reads so many chapters a week, and I could never do that, so I'm just not going to do anything. God is not looking to compare you against somebody else, church. He's looking for each one of us to take steps closer to him. When we move into our prayer and fasting in January... And we talk about it the first week we're back. We're going to talk all about prayer and fasting, what it is, how you can be a part of it, what God expects as we walk through that and what he doesn't expect. I want to encourage you during that time to understand spending time with God is not about what the people around you choose to do. It's about what you choose to do with him. And for some of you, it may look like this large, big thing. And for others, it may be this small little thing because of whatever's happening in your life. Here's what I know. When you take a step closer to God and your heart's positioned to get to know him more, he responds. He always responds. He always responds. And in that relationship, as it continues to get stronger and stronger, you want to spend more time with him. He gives you more and more opportunity to grow closer to him. He fills you with the peace that passes understanding. And then it's not a how many minutes or how long do I have to spend with God. It's how much time do I get to spend with God. And then it just doesn't become a quiet moment, maybe in your house or in your room. It becomes the way you walk your day. It becomes your conversations in your car. It becomes your conversations at work or in the supermarket or sitting in a church service. Then it becomes an ongoing conversation. And that's the way God works. The more we spend time with him, the more we understand who he is. The more we fix our eyes on him, the more we understand his nature. Because when we give our lives to Christ, it's the beginning of walking with an attitude of perfect peace. So this morning, the worship team is going to close in a song today. And it's appropriate for this season. It's a version of, of Come All Ye Faithful. But it also declares the names of God that we just spoke about. So I'm going to encourage you, as they sing it, you can stand with us and you can sing along. Or you can just sit in silence as they sing and you can meditate on the words. Because you know where you are with God this morning. We don't. But I do pray during this time that you'll have an opportunity to refocus, to connect with him this morning as we worship him. So Father, I just ask that you would speak to our hearts, that you would love us the way that you've committed to loving us and that we would experience you today the way that you've promised. Not that you promised to extinguish all those frustrations and chaos around us, but that you would quiet the storms in our hearts and you would remind us that we can walk in the perfect peace, the shalom that you have called us to experience through the saving power of your Lord of our Lord Jesus Christ. In your name we pray.